Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. If you took Kansas on the money line, or if you took North Carolina plus four, you might be a big time winner here today. Make sure to check out BetOnline for all of your betting needs for the rest of the basketball playoffs. You can sign up today and get a 50% welcome bonus with the link in the description to this episode using the promo code BELIEVE. B-L-E-A-V. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network and live on YouTube, except it isn't live because it's a podcast and it isn't live on YouTube because I couldn't figure out how to get my camera on on YouTube and it was pissing me off, so I decided to just make a regular video following the national championship between Kansas and North Carolina. Welcome in, everybody. We've got that coming up. We're also going to talk about the Houston Astros today, and we are going to talk with our friend Juju Talks Sports from the Salampa Buster podcast about the Miami Dolphins and the just the way that we think about the NBA MVP. Not necessarily a talk about the MVP conversation this year, but just the way we think about the NBA MVP. Uh, we'll talk about that later on in the show. We begin with this wonderful A Block talking about the College Basketball National Championship. And I gotta say, pretty freaking entertaining. I know as a child when I was really, really investing a lot of my emotional stability in sports because it was the thing that brought me joy in a really, really sad childhood, an anxious childhood, and I threw myself into sports, and it's the reason why I still do this lovely podcast is that connection I still have to sports and childhood. Back then, I invested a lot more in March Madness. Last year during the pandemic, I defaulted to my childhood ways and got really really invested in March Madness again and this year I didn't invest as much in March Ma- in March Madness in fact I said when you have things to do when you have priorities in your life like myself giving a TED talk over the weekend or just spending time with people that I love and care about you can get away with skipping the first 35 minutes of a college basketball game and just watching the final five and pretty much getting the gist of what happened in the game because the first 35 minutes really aren't memorable unless there's something catastrophic like an injury or a massive upset or something along those lines. I would have recommended not watch I would have recommended watching the for, the first 35 minutes of North Carolina and Kansas though cuz that was actually a really really fun game. North Carolina went on a 12-0 run at the end of the first half and they were up like 15 at halftime. It was like Jesus Christ. 
North Carolina is blowing the brakes off of Kansas, and they're this Cinderella team that's pretty much dominated everyone they faced in the tournament, and Caleb Love is this magical second-half warrior. And then Kansas just erased the lead in like 11 minutes. And it was like, holy shit, okay. So even though the score was basically tied with four minutes left to go, and you could have basically wiped out everything that happened at the beginning of the game, was still really kind of interesting to see. Um, the other thing that was interesting was Hubert Davis just going crazy on the sidelines, like living and dying with every single play. And I don't remember who number 14 was. I think his last name was Johnson for North Carolina, but like that dude embodied Hubert Davis's persona because Hubert Davis was just going crazy on the sidelines with just ridiculous high energy and whoever Johnson was for North Carolina, that dude embodied Hubert Davis. He is one of those, I will run through a brick wall because that dude had so much energy going on in that game. So anyways, North Carolina kicks ass at the start of the game. Kansas becomes a second half team. The same thing Kansas did the entire tournament, which, you know, sometimes they're just a second half team. And I know we talk a lot about the well, a team goes weekend to weekend and they change when they don't have a quick turnaround time and they can play a different game. I think it's just a bit of a myth and the team is what the team is. This is a one game sample size that disproves the idea of teams play weekend to weekend, especially really good teams. Kansas was a second half team all year. Their field goal percentage in the tournament improved like 25 points in the second half of games. Uh, I think they they used the Miami game and the uh, Sweet 16 game they played against Providence and the game they played tonight, they just dramatically improve in the second half. And that just happens to be who Kansas was. And Kansas did it against North Carolina, who they were better than the entire season. But we never saw North Carolina truly look like an eight seed, except for that second half where Brady Manick gets ejected and Baylor comes back from 25 down in like eight minutes. North Carolina had a 15-point lead, and then they started to look like an 8 seed because Kansas was a true number one seed, even though I can't name anyone on the team besides McCormick, who scored the last four points of the game for Kansas. The team was really, really, really good this year. They also had a Braun, but he, na he, he called his last name Brown, which was a little confusing, but yeah, Braun was really good for Kansas, and they win the national championship with a relative no-name team, and Bill Self gets his second championship, which you can craft the storyline out of Bill Self, like it's less interesting than, say, North Carolina or Duke as the storyline, and the Hubert Davis and the Roy Williams, and they even led off the broadcast. Jim Nance, like right before tip-off, was like, both of these coaches succeeded Roy Williams, and it's like, okay, well, we can make the storyline about Roy Williams, or we can make the storyline about Hubert Davis, Bill Self, all depends on what you're going for in terms of selling the nostalgia of college basketball, back when college basketball mattered to a general audience. It's just capturing that magic again while you still have it, and figure, about, figure out how to evolve and change later, because... The other thing I realized is that that national championship broadcast for TBS or CBS or the Turner-Viacom partnership that bids on the tournament, it has not changed in like eight years. Like as long as I've been watching the tournament, they've just not changed anything about March Madness. It is formulaic. It is strategic. They do not innovate or change anything 
anything about the March Madness broadcast. From the first round, to the corporate champions, to the championship broadcast, to even the graphics on the TV. You can trick me by just putting fun new graphics on the television. It's more fun that way. They haven't changed shit about March Madness in eight years. But you can still sell the storylines, right? Sports are ultimately stakes and storylines, and every now and then fun colors on the screen that trick me into thinking that it's new and exciting. But Bill Self, I did not even know that Bill Self's dad had died in January, and that this was a team that ends up winning the national championship. I thought that was a really cool story, and I thought that would have been great to invest in, but we put all of our brain power and energy to Duke and North Carolina. Understandably, like this was, again, the end of college basketball as we knew it, that we didn't get to invest in Kansas the way that maybe I would have enjoyed a little bit. And I know I didn't watch very much Kansas in the tournament. I watched part of the, I watched the second half of the Miami game. I didn't watch them play Providence. Uh, do I have to go to my bracket to remember who they played? Come on, I know who they played. They played Texas Southern. I didn't watch that game, but I know they played Texas Southern. And then they played Creighton really close in the second round, but I didn't watch any of that game. So I guess I only watched, like, what, the 20 minutes tonight plus, or sorry, the 40 minutes tonight plus 20 minutes against Miami of Kansas basketball all season. And maybe that's on me for not actively seeking out the Bill Self storyline, but they didn't bring it up enough to like actually get me invested in Kansas. And that's a cool story. Like the cool story of Kansas winning the championship and McCormick looking absolutely dominant against like Baycott, who obviously got hurt at the end. By the way, one more thing that I'd like to point out, and I don't know if this is going to go viral or not, but it should. When the North Carolina player, it might have been Johnson again, when the player, oh, when the player for North Carolina went down near the end of the game, I thought it was really interesting that they basically pivoted the broadcast to show like, well, what happened? The player kind of went down on the ground, you know, what ended up happening there? And then lo and behold, the thing that we end up seeing is just nine consecutive seconds of a Kansas player's ass just zoomed in straight on the ass cheeks, like no back, no legs, just straight on the ass cheeks was the camera angle that the broadcast had. And then someone decided we're going to put this on television because it's the best angle we have to after nine seconds of ass seeing the North Carolina player go down and trying to figure out what exactly happened to him. Just straight ass for so long and it would have been cool to well no it would have been cool to just have the ass photo I hope it went viral I'm not checking Twitter but I hope that went viral that just nine seconds of straight ass of a Kansas player it was the number 30 guy whose name starts with an O just straight ass on the broadcast um, back to Bill Self and his dead father is a weird pivot it would have been cool to invest in the stakes and storylines of that and we just didn't get to do it, and it was a great championship game, and we'll be entertained by that. But if you're selling the stakes and storylines, that would have been a cool storyline to have. Not that they needed stakes and storylines this year, as we now know the the Duke-Carolina semifinal was the highest-rated cable television March Madness game in five years as their ratings continue to dip and dip. And this, the first semifinal game did better than Baylor and Houston last year, but still was worse than every other Final Four game pre-pandemic. 
you know, as time goes on, it's just less and less important and people are going to find other entertainment options and they're not going to invest in the stakes and storylines of college basketball. And that's how college basketball becomes a niche sport. We care about it for three weeks of the year, but it's not even three full weeks. It's really like four days and then kind of on the weekend and then the final four and then the national championship game. But you can get away with skipping a couple of those. So really, it's like six days of the year that we really care about March Madness. And that's okay. That's a regional sports. Hockey doesn't get six days of the calendar. So it's basketball. It'll draw some people in. I thought the Bill Self storyline would have been cool to invest in, and we just didn't get the chance to to watch that this year. So it's okay. You know, no shame. It's just the way that the cookie crumbled on that one. And it was a fun championship game. I have zero complaints about how the championship game went down. It was close. It was one team having a 15-point lead and then blowing that 15-point lead and back and forth and three-pointers and Caleb Love firing up buzzer beaters and Brady Manick throwing the ball away with four seconds left. And now we know the names of Brady Manick and Armando Baycott and guys that we start to invest in the same way. I knew every player on the 2020 Tampa Bay Rays just because I was watching so much Rays baseball. We got to invest in the stakes and storylines at the end for that Carolina team, and we missed an opportunity to invest in Kansas, and that's okay. Kansas gets to be a relative no-name champion. Bill Self, who's already a basketball Hall of Famer, gets a second championship. It's a fun, cool story, and Kansas gets to walk away as champions because they are truly a basketball school. This is what all of that losing in football for the last 10 years delivered for Kansas. I know we love joking about Kansas football, on this podcast. In fact, we've made entire segments out of Kansas football across many, many years. But Kansas made a decision a long time ago. We are going to collect those football checks from ESPN. We're going to pour it all into basketball. And this has delivered a second championship, a fifth Final Four under Bill Self, 76 tournament games, as Jim Nance emphasized off the top of the broadcast. Bill Self is a Hall of Fame coach who happened to succeed Roy Williams because Kansas got incredibly lucky at picking their basketball coach and giving that basketball coach the resources to succeed. Bill Self happened to be the coach for Kansas. They didn't have to, you know, rotate through some mediocre coaches or some Alfords like UCLA had to alternate through. They got themselves a Hall of Fame coach to follow a Hall of Fame coach to follow a Hall of Fame coach before that because they had Larry Brown there before that. So congratulations to Kansas. All of that losing in football delivered you the absolute joy of a championship in basketball. And you got to beat Texas this year. I'd argue beating Texas might be more of an accomplishment for Kansas than winning the national championship in basketball. But congratulations, Kansas. All of that 12 consecutive seasons of losing in football has now delivered you a second national championship in the Bill Self era.
So every year we come to this time and I decide how to do a Major League Baseball preview because when we were first starting off this podcast many, many years ago, back when I was a freshman in college, now I'm about to graduate college, but back many, many podcasts ago, one of the things that we did was, you know, going team by team. One of the things that I really enjoyed was doing a 30 teams in 30 minutes baseball preview where I said the name of every team during a 30 minute spiel about baseball. I enjoyed doing that. I don't know if I can do that so much for this year, but the first year that we did this podcast, the baseball season ended up getting postponed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And they didn't start until July. And then we did that preview and baseball was the first sport to come back after four and a half months. And we were doing a lot of talking about sports back then. And so after the COVID-19 pandemic happened, we did that preview for baseball. Last year, we did a more traditional MLB opening day preview for baseball. Didn't really get the engagement I was looking for. And to be honest, I just don't feel the same love of let's break down team by team Major League Baseball the way that I used to. We can do it. It just isn't as entertaining or as fun for me as talking about the storytelling elements of baseball and so the Dodgers are the best team in baseball this year the Dodgers were the best team in baseball last year they'll be the best team in baseball for many many years because of the size of their regional television contracts and because the Dodgers won't play fair in the corporatization of professional sports in America what do I mean by that we talked about in the past how Jerry Jones in the NFL created the salary cap structure with the other owners in the 90s as a means to suppress wages. It means everyone is going to be more competitive, but everyone is going to pay less to their players because they can't spend what is fair market value for those players. Because owners can't really be trusted to not spend large exorbitant amounts of money, they have to put caps and restrictions on owners' spending abilities. Baseball, for years and years and years, did not have a salary cap, and Major League Baseball negotiated individual regional television contracts, which is something the NFL does not do. The NBA and NHL also do it, but teams can get what they can get in their regional television contracts because they're selling 80 games per season, or in baseball, 162 games per season to cable television networks, and it's just impossible to package that all together as a team. But when you're selling 256 total games, like the NFL is, and well, it used to be 256, now it's 272. When you're selling 272 regular season games, plus some preseason games, it's easy to sell them as a giant singular package for the NFL. For each baseball and, and basketball team, it just makes more sense to sell them individually because there's so many games every given night. And so Major League Baseball, each team gets what they can get in a television contract, which means bigger markets that get larger regional television contracts, which makes you up a large majority of baseball revenues outside of tickets at the gate, which... Relatively speaking, gate tickets are more increased by larger markets, but that's just a ballpark figure. Generally, good teams sell tickets for higher prices. Worse teams sell tickets for lower prices with a few a few different examples of exceptions across Major League Baseball. 
So all of this is to say the Dodgers don't play fair because the Dodgers are willing to spend exorbitant amounts of revenue and take less profits. The ultimate goal of a corporation is to maximize profits for shareholders. And over the last 30 years, sports have moved to a more corporate model where in the NFL, the almighty dollar is the bottom line. And in the NBA, the almighty dollar is the bottom line. Increasing franchise valuations, it's the way to go. Baseball also does this except for the Dodgers. The Dodgers have no issues just spending and spending and spending. In fact, their recent financial reports suggest the Dodgers only make about $100 million per year, despite the fact that their their income is in the billions per season. Where does all the money go? They spend it on players and pay exorbitant luxury tax penalties. It's the same thing Steve Cohen is going to do with the Mets, which is I'm willing to lose money to try and put a competitive baseball team that wins championships on the field. And it would be so much more fun if more people did this as owners. It would be so much more fun if owners said we are worth all billions of dollars because we own these teams. Let's not make them financial investments. Let's just have fun. Let's have fun playing free agency with basically giant toys. It would be so much more fun. In football, you don't have anyone who plays this game because everyone's subjected to a salary cap. The NBA is the same way where everyone's subjected to a salary cap and they have max contracts. So not even the best players can take up larger portions of the salary cap, which is why the NBA gives power to players instead of giving money to players. And baseball gives power to players because they give the or baseball gives money to players, which ultimately translates to power for a very select few. But ultimately, Major League Baseball spends exorbitant. Uh, Major League Baseball sets up a system so that teams can make money, and that's why MLB has a lot more tanking, et cetera, et cetera. But the Dodgers and you know recently the Mets have thrown caution into the wind and have said we're the only sport that doesn't have a true salary cap. Now they have competitive balance taxes, which most teams have just colluded to agree that they're not going to spend over the competitive balance tax thresholds, whether it be the Padres or whether it be the Red Sox or the Yankees who don't spend over those thresholds at any point since they were implemented in 2016. You don't see people spending and having it be an effective salary cap, except for the Dodgers, who can always field a better team because they're playing with $80 million more per season than any other team is playing with. All of that to say, the Dodgers are the best team in baseball, and every single year I get to this place, and I start figuring out who is the best team in the American League. And every single year for the past four to five years, I land on the Houston Astros and the New York Yankees. It always ends up on the Astros and the Yankees. And there are a couple exceptions in between. Sometimes it's Boston. One year, Tampa Bay had a magical run that got us all excited where in order to get to the World Series in a pandemic, they had to beat the Yankees in a winner-go-home game and Houston in a winner-go-home game. But it always comes down to Astros and Yankees, and if you're going to get past the Astros and Yankees, you got to beat both of them in the playoffs. It has been the case since 2017, and it's going to continue to be the case 
into this year. Now, the Yankees are in an interesting place because the Yankees have so many bad contracts on the books that they can get rid of because they're the Yankees and they have gigantic contracts. But Hal Steinbrenner isn't willing to subtract revenue in order to spend over the competitive balance tax threshold. And so essentially the Yankees are operating in a salary cap where they've given out four or five really bad contracts, whether that be Stanton's deal, which he's still a great player, He's just making so much money, and he's not one of the 10 best players in baseball. And whether it be LeMahieu getting a contract, Garrett Cole getting $35 million a year to be a fantastic regular season pitcher, and it's just a large amount of money for anything for someone who now has two consecutive winner-go-home playoff games with L's attached to them, even if the 2021 wasn't his fault. The 2021 one, that was his fault. The 2021 just didn't get enough offense. Aaron Hicks got a big contract, and he's gotten hurt. Gary Sanchez got traded for Josh Donaldson, who's now a big contract. The Yankees traded Luke Voigt. They're stuck in a purgatory right now. They just gave Rizzo a giant contract. Like They've spent so much money on the core that they have, and they're finding out that the money they spent is not good enough to get over the Dodgers, the Astros, the Red Sox, or the Tampa Bay Rays, which is weird because the Tampa Bay Rays don't spend a lot of money. Tampa Bay Rays are just smarter than everyone. So the Yankees are in a place this year where their players are bad contracts, but they're still going to be good enough to get into the dance. And baseball's playoffs are so random, more random than any other sport, even though the best team sometimes emerges from the bunch, which we're going to talk about in a second, They are incredibly, incredibly random from about teams four to teams 10. Last year, I thought the Atlanta Braves were going to lose in the first round of the playoffs, and they ended up winning the World Series by completely retooling their entire offense, or half of their offense, at the trading deadline. They traded for Eddie Rosario, Adam Duvall, um, Jock Peterson, and Jorge Soler. Soler goes on to win World Series MVP. Rosario wins NLCS MVP. Boom, bomb. Atlanta Braves World Series champion. Break a drought by changing your entire offense at the trade deadline. And the Atlanta Braves happened to win a completely random playoffs where once the Dodgers got hurt, it was pretty much a crapshoot. But you know who's always at the top of Major League Baseball? When, I, when we say that the playoffs are a crapshoot in baseball, that's about teams 3 to teams 12 are pretty freaking random, especially in small sample sizes. Because again, in baseball, the worst team in the history of baseball still won three out of every, uh, one out of every three games, and the best team in the history of baseball still only won two out of every three games. So we're talking about incredibly, incredibly thin margins in baseball, especially in random one-game sample sizes. Which, if a team gets hot at one point, they can take down pretty much anyone because teams 3 through 12 are all pretty damn similar to each other. But you know who's always at the top? The Dodgers. And the team I want to talk about here today, the Houston Astros. And this is going to be an incredibly, incredibly narcissistic Houston Astros podcast because I love talking about the Houston Astros. This is an incredibly, incredibly fascinating story, not just of like sports culture, but sports fandom and how we influence the games, not just with the dollar, but also with the court of public opinion. The Astros are such a fascinating story over the past 
two years, but really over the past 10 years in Major League Baseball because everyone uses the Astros model to suggest that's how we're going to win is by tearing everything to the ground and building it back up. Not to ignoring the fact that the Astros, before they ever started the process, had Hall of Fame second baseman Jose Altuve, future Cy Young Award winner Dallas Keuchel, and future World Series MVP George Springer already in the organization before they even started their teardown. We ignore that fact, but still, the Houston Astros are incredibly, incredibly smart because not only did the Astros tear everything to the ground, they were willing to invest the resources and the vision in order to build it back up. There are multiple great books that have been written on the Astros and how they've built this team up, whether it be Cheated, which is about the scandal by Andy Martino, The MVP Machine, which is a story about how the second Moneyball revolution is where analytics are used to actually improve player skill, which circles around now disgraced pitcher Trevor Bauer and um, some people who work with Trevor Bauer in Washington and Los Angeles and Justin Turner and the Houston Astros, who are at the forefront of a lot of this improving players with analytics. Astro Ball is a book that I haven't read, but I suggest is really good, or like I assume is really good because it's talking about that Astros team. It's so interesting. In the past two years, I've been so fascinated by the Houston Astros, not just because of how they've basically become the modern-day Patriots of Major League Baseball, but because they are now going to be known in the court of public opinion as the cheaters in the exact same way that history repeats itself with the steroid scandal and the Pete Rose scandal and all of that stuff. But we'll get to that in a second. The Astros are still powerhouses of baseball, now over two full years removed from the cheating scandal, dismantling their entire franchise, and five years removed from the actual cheating scandal itself. The Houston Astros are what most people were considering a scandal for the times in baseball. Quick to forget that baseball went through a crazy decade of steroid chasing and moral outrage. People were so mad because it looked like the Houston Astros got that little competitive edge that happened to lead to them winning the World Series. And I've always pushed back. Ever since the scandal first came out and ever since the results were handed down in 2020, I have always pushed back on bucking up against the Houston Astros and scapegoating the Houston Astros and labeling them as one thing and one thing only as cheaters. That is an incredible disservice to the greatness of the Houston Astros and also lacks an incredibly large amount of perspective from Major League Baseball fans and sports fans as a whole, which generally lack perspective. This happens more often than we think. But the Astros now are three seasons removed from the cheating scandal leaving their coach getting fired. It left their entire front office switched. They went through that scandal and now they emerge on the other end of it as a team who now has a new general manager, James Crick, third year, third year with Dusty Baker as the manager, and the Houston Astros have an entirely new roster with just a few pieces left over from the scandal teams of 2017 through 2019. No more Justin Verlander, no more Garrett Cole, even though Justin Verlander's still on the team, coming off of Tommy John surgery in his 40s. No more Garrett Cole, 
no more Zach Granke. Enter Lance McCullers, Jose Urikidi, Framber Valdez, Luis Garcia. New players, new faces on the Houston Astros. The Astros find themselves in a place where they're still a powerhouse in a quite unequal game of baseball where they have just set the bar so far ahead of everyone else the same way the Patriots did in the early 2000s where they set the bar so far ahead and they had the foresight to continue evolving instead of letting everyone else try and catch them. And it's not perfect for the Houston Astros. The Astros don't always spend the amount necessary to keep the competitive advantage of having a better organizational philosophy than everyone except the Dodgers in Major League Baseball. But it's the Dodgers, it's the Astros, and it's everyone else. And the Astros are doing it while not spending at the incredible dollar values that the Dodgers spend at, although they do spend at levels equal to the Yankees and the Red Sox and all of these teams that they've been dominating for the past five years of Major League Baseball. The 2017 to 2021 Houston Astros are the greatest baseball run of our lifetime. They have gone to five consecutive league championship series. First team to do that since the 1990s New York Yankees. They've played in three World Series in five years. They won the one championship in 2017. They came within one game of the World Series in 2019 and then came within two games of the World Series last year against the Atlanta Braves. The Houston Astros have been the team of a generation in a sport that doesn't have that level of dominance by anyone not named the Dodgers. The Dodgers, even the Yankees now are little brothers, even the Red Sox, who have won four championships in 18 years, always went through cycles every five years. It was the 04 team, and then they stunk for two years, and then they magically won a championship in 07. Then they stunk in 2012, last place in the division, 2013 comeback win the World Series. They finished last place in 2017, or sorry, 2016, I think it was. One of the years, uh, Red Sox finished fourth in the division, turn around two years later, win the World Series. Red Sox tank with, uh, you know, they get rid of Mookie Betts. They have all those bad contracts. They move off. They, they get the number four pick in the draft. They get the four pick in the draft next year, make it to the ALCS. The Astros have been consistently great for five consecutive seasons now, and there is no reason to suggest that the Houston Astros are going to stop anytime soon. The Astros are succeeding with a new generation of stars. You know, enter Jordan Alvarez, who has developed through their farm system. They, you know, when they were going through the 2017 team into the 2019 team, they traded for Garrett Cole, who was a former number one pick in the draft, kind of middling with the Pirates a bit. And then he gets to, uh, there's a great story in the MVP machine, the book, about how Garrett Cole gets there. They say, hey, change this on your road if you can improve this many rotations on your slider and do this we think you're going to be an incredible pitcher and lo and behold Garrett Cole becomes the best pitcher in Major League Baseball just by tweaking two things with a trackman machine all of a sudden he becomes guy who doesn't lose a single start from May until October of 2019 and still didn't win Cy Young because Justin Verlander was also on his team who in 2017 was traded for by the Astros from the Tigers and then immediately changed his rotations on his fastball and his off-speed pitches and won a Cy Young at 37 years old 
over his teammate Garrett Cole. The Astros are doing things so smart, and they have the willingness to evolve and change. But now we're in year three of no more Jeff Lunau, no more AJ Hinch. Many of the players have rotated out. You know, Michael Brantley was on the 2019 team, but he's now one of the longest tenured Astros. There's no more Correa, there's no more Springer, there's no more Granke, there's no more Garrett Cole. But they still continue to be really, really good. And last year, if not for the slump of Carlos Correa and the slump of Alex Bregman, they might end up winning the World Series again. And they got to the World Series with relative ease because when the Astros go through cycles, the foundation is there where the players they get, they develop new players and they trade for players who they then transform their careers like Charlie Morton by using analytics to help improve players. And it's really fascinating that they are doing things really, really smart and putting in the money to spend, but not too much money that they're willing to dish out giant contracts to George Springer in his 30s or giant contract to Carlos Correa. The Astros have a new generation of stars. They've gotten so far ahead of everyone else that even as the gap gets closed, they're still better than the Yankees. They're still better than the Boston Red Sox. They're still better than, I mean, who else is the fourth team in the American League? I guess Tampa, but them and Tampa are... You know, Tampa's not spending at the level of the Astros. The Astros literally took Tampa's president and put him in place after uh, Jeff Lunau got fired. So it's really interesting to see how they do that. And so I always, always articulated that we needed to appreciate greatness. I do this all the time. We need to appreciate, appreciate, appreciate greatness. And what does this have to do with the Astros? The cheating scandal of the Houston Astros was handled poorly by Major League Baseball and the people who were involved with the scandal. They tried giving players protection, scapegoated people at the top of the organization because someone needed a punish, they needed a punishment to appease the court of public opinion, aka their fan base. And when you try and do justice by your fan base, especially when it's like not major scandals, like it's something as silly as a cheating scandal or steroids or gambling that really don't matter. Like when we're talking about sexual assault and sexual harassment, or we're talking about uh, legitimate crimes committed that have legal precedent, but the legal system isn't accountable. So we want to find some measure of accountability in our sports leagues. That's a different conversation. Those are things that morally and ethically should matter to sports leagues if we want to have a moral conscience. Steroids, while they affect the bottom line of the league more, they're not as big a deal as people made them out to be in the 2000s. Hence why we got to a place where everyone was claiming for punishment for Barry Bonds. And then when we got to 2022 and he wasn't going to get elected to the Hall of Fame, we all looked around and we were like, how the hell did we let this happen? Near universally, we were like, how does Barry Bonds not get into the Hall of Fame? Because we were just caught up in the moment of thinking that this mattered and we got morally outraged and we made a bunch of mistakes and didn't have the gall to correct them later on. We did the same thing with Pete Rose. Nobody thinks Pete Rose shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame because the greatness supersedes the crime, which was, yes, he gambled on games. And lo and behold, 
They protect the competitive integrity of the sport, ban him for life. Baseball starts taking gambling money, just as all of these sports leagues start taking gambling money, etc., etc. I do care about competitive integrity, and I'm also not illusioned to the fact that this is a fine line between entertainment and athletic competition. We'd like to believe that we're watching pure and true athletic competition. That's never going to be the case. This is entertainment. And if you have a scale of competition to entertainment, say like the most competitive sport you can find is a a 100 meter dash, let's say, you know, everyone is running the same distance. It lasts about nine seconds. Sure, you can put whatever you want into your body, but ultimately a 100 meter dash might be the purest that you're going to get in terms of athletic competition. If that's the purest of pure athletic competitions and wrestling is entertainment it's disguised as sport but it's entertainment it's scripted all of that stuff if that's the bar that we're going to draw where farthest end of the spectrum is a sprint in terms of athletic competition and farthest end of entertainment in sports is wrestling where does baseball fall in between and the answer to that question is wherever it maximizes league revenue Wrestling realized they could go mainstream by just being entertainment. The best way for them to sell the sport was to be near entirely entertainment. The NFL wants to prioritize athletic competition because that's what the fans want, but they also want to be entertained. And so the NFL is going to change the rules to protect quarterbacks and drive up offense because it's an entertainment league. So you find a balance between what is entertainment, what is scripted, what can you change to make it more entertaining, and what is the purest of athletic competition. You have to strike that balance. Baseball is also trying to find the balance that maximizes revenue as a corporation. And so the unofficial line was apparently crossed by the Houston Astros, by steroid cheats in Balco and uh, Biogenesis, That got everyone morally outraged because that was crossing the line of athletic competition to entertainment. And there was a massive moral outrage that people just didn't care about. Just didn't care about it the way that they tried to say that they cared about cheating. And it felt like an indictment on all of us that we go too far in those situations. By the way, we do this in the NFL also. We did it with Deflategate, and the NFL suspended Tom Brady four games for nothing, as evidence very clearly suggests later on. We want to believe in the cheating scandal. We want to believe in this concept that exists, when in reality what the Astros did messed up the competitive integrity of the game, and not enough so that all it did was change the margins in between. And the other thing I've always pointed out is, yeah, the Astros may have cheated, but wasn't it fun? Wasn't it fun when in game five of the 2017 World Series, the score was 13 to 12 in the 11th inning with an Alex Bregman walk-off? That had to be like the most fun baseball game with the highest stakes I have ever seen. And by the way, Fans think that too, because baseball ratings keep going down when you make it more boring. Baseball wants to increase home runs and wants to increase offense because it's entertainment, and they're going to change the rules to increase entertainment. And as a fan, you want to be entertained too. 
I know I want to be entertained, and the Astros are incredibly, incredibly entertaining and fascinating. With the little marginal gain they got from a cheating scandal, yeah, they probably swung the result of the World Series. And what? Is that something to get you completely morally outraged? I care about competitive integrity not as much as everyone else does. And by the way, a lot of the people who are screaming competitive integrity don't actually care that much about competitive integrity, and there are a whole lot of people that probably aren't watching baseball games. A lot of people clamoring outrage over the Astros cheating scandal were not watching baseball games. This is the incredible imbalance that I've been complaining about for two plus years with the Astros. The Astros clearly aren't the greatest villains of the last 20 years in baseball. In fact, they might be baseball's most amazing success story of the last 20 years. They did everything. They exploited so many market inefficiencies that the Astros find themselves with the most dominant run in baseball across the last 20 years. Like I said, five ALCS appearances in a row has not happened since the 1990s Yankees. They've made three World Series in five years. Only the Giants have done that in the last 20 years. And they have won one World Series. Okay, baseball can be random sometimes. They've come to they've gotten to three World Series in five years and have gone to five straight ALCSs. They are a baseball dominant story for a generation. As the Yankees fans complain, they haven't been to a World Series in 12 years. It's because of the Astros. And by the way, the Astros had no right to do that. The Astros were not the Yankees. The Astros were not the Red Sox. They don't have the revenue of the Dodgers. The Astros had no right to do that. They did it in a sport and in a division that's had two generational talents in a row. Why does Mike Trout never make... Why does the greatest baseball player any of us have ever seen never make the playoffs? In part, mismanagement by the Angels. In second part, because the Houston Astros exist at the same time. That's amazing. It's so fascinating. And it's even more fascinating that they're outcasted as cheaters now. The Astros are the fascinating story of baseball. And I'm going to ride with the Astros just because why would I bet against them now when they've proven time and time again, we can lose a Correa and we'll go to the World Series. We can lose George Springer in free agency. We'll go to the World Series the next year. We'll lose Garrett Cole in free agency. We'll come within one game of the World Series the next year. We'll go 29 and 31 in the regular season during the strike, the pandemic shortened season. And we're going to come within one game of the World Series. Why? Because we're the goddamn Houston Astros. That's why. And we had no right to any of this stuff. For 20 years, no right for that team to topple. The Astros are big brothers to the Yankees. They're big brothers to the Red Sox. The Astros had no right to any of that shit. And they've stolen it from these baseball giants. It's, it's the Patriots all over again. It just happened in a different form. And it's not going to last as long as the Patriots, but it's still going to last longer than any baseball team of the last 25 years has found sustainable greatness. Other than the Dodgers, who just play a different game than everyone else. It's so fascinating what the Houston Astros have done. And I've said from the very beginning of 2020, we would all regret diminishing the greatness of the Houston Astros 
over this scandal, but it's just not that big of a deal. And the Astros are so fascinating because we're doing the same thing to them we did to the greats of baseball. Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Alex Rodriguez, all of the steroid cheats who entertained us when we kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, knew they were doing steroids and then scapegoated later. We just ignored it. And you might be outraged about a cheating scandal in baseball that, by the way, if you read Cheated by Andy Martino, it's been going on forever. The moment that's considered to be the greatest moment in the history of baseball. Shot heard around the world, 1952. It was cheated. They had a telescope in the outfield and a buzzer system that told the hitter when the pitch was coming. It's all part of baseball history And by the way, it's not as morally outrageous as we think it is. And I argued from the very beginning, change the way that you do. This is a chance for evolution, not a chance to just scapegoat the perpetrators and then make the rules stricter. This is not a time for adding law enforcement. You don't need more law enforcement. That's not the solution. You need to change the rules and change the structures. I argued, and again, this isn't my job, so there might be logistical concerns to this. Have pitching coaches call plays into the headsets of the catcher and call it into the headsets of pitchers just like you do with the NFL call plays there and then the catcher can change the sign afterwards it's an evolution of the sport and you know what no we're going to do things the way we always have and we're going to double down and triple down on law enforcement which if you look at America is that a good way to go about it Did we learn nothing from mass incarceration in the 1990s and 2000s? Baseball's just going to scapegoat the people who committed the cheat. By the way, not even scapegoat the people who deserve to get busted in the cheating scandal. The players were the ones who deserved to get busted. They just had to give someone a punishment. They gave players total immunity in the cheating scandal. It does not matter the way that people think it matters. The Astros should be defined by this incredibly great run that, again, more World Series in five years than anyone not named the San Francisco Giants in the last 20 years, five straight ALCSs, most since the Yankees in the 90s, which is the team that won three straight World Series and is widely regarded as the greatest dynasty in the history of Major League Baseball. The Astros are this five-year run of the Astros is that level of dominant. They had no right to do it, and it's so fascinating how they did it and how they've been scapegoated for it and how they keep winning. So to start off this baseball season, talk more about the Astros because baseball should sell the holy hell out of the Astros. Villains or loved, they should be selling the holy shit out of the Houston Astros, and I'm going to bet on them deep in the playoffs again this season. And... By the way, the Houston Astros, since the cheating scandal, you know, wiped out their entire organization. 2020, one game away from making the World Series. They went to seven games against the Tampa Bay Rays, which, by the way, I said in 2020 when the Atlanta Braves got within one game of the World Series that that would be the best run of success that they had during this five-year era that took five more years to build back up. Over 10 years of Braves baseball, I thought the best they could do was get within one game of the World Series. I was wrong, but last year they rebuilt their entire team from scratch and won the random gauntlet of baseball because the Dodgers happened to all get hurt. 
They are the dynasty of baseball. 2020, one game away from the World Series. Last year, made it to the World Series and lost in six games to the Braves. Since they wiped out their head, their manager and their um, assistant vice president in a separate scandal, their second-in-command, Brandon Tobin, got fired in a separate scandal, and everyone's poached different people off of the organization and fired Jeff Lunau. They replaced everyone except for a handful of players and went right back to winning. And the Houston Astros now need to figure out if they're going to be able to keep this going because, again, the Astros have no right to be as good as they've been. And yet, for the past five years, they have dominated baseball. They have dominated the entire sport. And they're going to win their division this year. They're going to get back to the playoff gauntlet. And damned if they will, damned if they don't, the Astros are going to be super fascinating to watch come playoff time with a brand new pitching staff, a near brand new uh, batting order. The Astros are going to be damn fascinating to watch. And I'm just going to bet on Houston based on principle at this point. And I hope, again, I like talking about the Astros so much because they're just so gosh darn fascinating. They are just so fascinating in the baseball lore. And the Houston Astros, again this year, If we want to have this conversation, we should because there's so many interesting layers to this Houston Astros team that I think if I'm doing a Major League Baseball preview, they're the team I want to talk about more than any other just because of I've done this podcast maybe a couple times before, never as in depth and thorough as this, but the Astros are the storyline. If you try and create stakes out of the Major League Baseball regular season, which has basically none. Major League Baseball's playoffs, our regular season is incredibly long. The best teams will generally emerge at the end. Some teams will battle it out for wild card spots, and it'll all come down to what was a, a best winner go home game, but is now uh, a best of three series in the wild card. So at least that'll make it a little bit more interesting. And Major League Baseball has about four teams that we know are really good, and everyone else that gets to the playoffs, it'll be a random crapshoot. But if we're going to generate interest in baseball, over the next four months, let's do it around the storylines of the Houston Astros and the storylines of the Yankees and just drum those up for the playoffs the same way I've been drumming up NBA headlines headed into the playoffs because NBA regular season doesn't matter. Baseball regular season really doesn't matter. We know who the good teams are and they will generally float to the top. It's going to be really, really interesting to watch once we get to October, but to get there, we got to start selling the storylines of the Houston Astros and the Dodgers and the Yankees because those storylines are going to be incredibly fascinating once again because we're living in this golden age of baseball where the Astros are dominating in a way no team has over the last 20 years. The Yankees are little brothers now, weird enough, but people really care about the Yankees and the Yankees are little brothers and the Boston Red Sox They are trying to get right back in the game the same way they got in the game last year. And maybe in the end, Tampa Bay will win. It'll be cool to watch. But the Astros are at the center of everything that we're talking about in Major League Baseball. And I made it 40 minutes talking about the Astros without even mentioning my San Diego Padres, which just picked a Luke Voigt here and picked a Sean Manaya there. And now they're trying to go all in this year. 
We're not better than the Dodgers, but maybe we'll get to a random playoff. We'll get to beat the Dodgers, and this will be our year. As long as we get to the playoffs, we got ourselves a puncher's chance.